If you have your Bibles tonight, I invite you to find Genesis chapter number 2. Genesis chapter number 2. Just a moment, we'll begin in, we will be beginning at verse number 4. Um, if you're anything at all like me, whether you use uh, social media some or you use it all the time, you go through spells where you're, you're just ready to be done with it. Yeah, just ready to be done with it. Uh, except every time I feel that way, something like I'm going to describe happens. Care has this first cousin that lives out in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they just have a precious family, and their younger son is special needs, with a lot of special needs, and, and uh, nearly every time I'm ready to get off social media, I'll see some update. He'll be experiencing a health crisis, or he'll be learning how to ride his new bicycle, or he'll be getting to experience something that we take for granted that, you know, he doesn't get to experience, taking a few steps. Or there'll be a new family picture, and I get to see how this family just fights for and loves and cares for this boy, and, and he's generally always happy, except for the trips to the hospital, and I get to see joy in the face of incredible challenges, and I'll be convicted by how often I have that kind of joy and the absence of those challenges, and I'll say, hmm, I need to stay on here. I need to keep watching this journey. I need to see this story unfold. And truth be told, I could tell you several other stories. Now, I'm, I'm not your nosy Facebook guy. I, I don't like the times where I see my friends being stupid. Um, that's the technical Greek word, in case you've never heard it. It means doing something when you know you ought not to, or not doing something you know you ought to. Amen? I don't enjoy that side of, of, of social media, but I love being able to see families grow up. I love seeing people celebrate their grandma's 96th birthday. I love to hear who survived the semester. I love the all C's reports. And I love to see who, who thrived during the semester, the, the A honor rolls. I like to see the school picture. And I especially like to see people find their family photos and pull out pictures of themselves that I have never seen. I love that side of social media. With all that being said, sometimes I still want to just cut the whole thing off. I'll say to myself, if I didn't use this so much for work. Ah. But for the side of saying, whatever became of so-and-so, I love that side of social media. Because it just stops me from asking that question so much. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised when I see a picture, say, of Carolyn, and almost all of her nephews are far bigger than her now. And I've been watching since none of them were. And to, to watch the journey of Amy and these girls, I don't regret that side. I don't have to say, what became of Carolyn's nephews? She keeps showing me what is becoming of them. Well, tonight, we look back and we see creation's Facebook. 
whatever became of old so-and-so, we're living in what became of them, we might ask, from whence did they spring? And tonight, we get to take a look at that. Again, like many of these readings will be, it's kind of a larger passage, but the church should never regret reading a lot of Bible. Amen? Uh, I've quoted it several times this week, but I told Michael Tuck at one point this week that uh, he's, he's, he's doing his chronological reading, he's studying something else. I said, don't worry, Michael. You're not going to overdose on the Bible. You'll be fine. So if we have to swallow a big pill tonight, don't worry, church. You're not going to OD. Amen? Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse number 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took... Uh, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. I mean, woman, because she was taken out of man. I've been waiting all week to do that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and we're not ashamed. Let us pray. Father, we have opened your word. Now, Holy Ghost, open it to us. You tell us in your word that it is like a sharp instrument that you can pierce all the way through our sinews, all the way to our very soul. So indeed, Father, pierce us. Do holy surgery. Cut out cankerous growths. Grant to us such a dose of your presence that we'll know the Lord has been at work on me tonight. In Jesus we pray, amen and amen. First off, let's cover a couple of very quick concepts found in the scriptures here that need to be covered. I want us to see something. The structure of Genesis is a story of begettings. It's an account of histories. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then follow all the way through Genesis 2, 3, and then you juxtapose that against Genesis 2, 4 through 25, you'll get what the smart folks call a chiasmus. Uh, maybe, just, a, just an illustration, it's not the exact same thing, but to make your mind develop a quick image, think of a yin and a yang. These two things are meant to complement each other. He made the earth, and then he's saying, let me show you what became of old earth and dirt. Let me, let me pull out the story of where you came from. It could very well be said, uh, in, in other words, it could, we could use other words. The English Standard Version says of Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens. The King James says the same thing, these are the generations. The New King James gives us something a little different. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. The New American Standard says this is the account of the heavens. You might say, I wonder what became of so-and-so when you look at your yearbook. And you might go back, you might go to social media, and you might look them up, and you might start finding pictures. And the, the funny thing is you'll get the latest picture. And as you scroll through their history, you'll go back in time. Here's what we're doing. We're getting the earliest pictures, and we're coming up in time. We're getting the account of what God did with what he made how God made who he made, and where did they go next? As a matter of fact, I put this in the bulletin. You might find it interesting. It's, it's, it's over toward the back of your bulletin, but I put a list of beginnings. This phrase, this wording is used many times, many times in the book of Genesis. I won't read them all, but look in your bulletin and let me point them out to you. We find this account here in Genesis 2-4. And notice something. This is very, very interesting. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, right? Now, I want you to see how this will shift. In Genesis 5:1, we see this is the book of the generations of who? Look in, look in your bulletin. Who is it? Adam. Then in Genesis 6:9, these are the generations of? Genesis 10:1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. You see this? Genesis 11:10, these are the generations of who, church? Genesis eleven twenty seven. These are the generations of. No one's ever named their child Tara. Why not? I don't know. When they get about three years old, you say maybe we should have named them Tara. Different spelling. Genesis twenty five twelve. These are the generations of who. Genesis twenty five nineteen. These are the generations of. 
Genesis 36, 1 and 9, we see it twice, the generations of who? And then in Genesis 37, 2, these are the generations of? Can you see why I would say this is an account of histories? This is a story of begettings. God has made these folks, and they've had folks, and he's pulling out their story. First, to tell us the unique story of humanity and then the even, I'll have to make up a word tonight, Clay, the uniquer story of God working with people. But what's interesting about this first beginning? Did anyone notice the rare time I'll ask a question while preaching and ask for an answer? What's different about this first beginning? It's the generations of heaven and earth. All the rest of these are the stories of family trees. We get the origin. Of the family tree. And where is it? Out of heaven, the heart of God, the mind of God, the hand of God, and out of earth, the material matter. Out of the heart and mind and power of God, he takes the earth and he makes people. Am I the only one blown away by this? So that at once, in one fell swoop, man is connected to his transcendent God and at the same time connected to the very soil under his feet. This doesn't give us a complicated life. It gives us a simple life full of profundity. In other words, I might say in redneck language, this is real cool, y'all. We're from God and of the earth. We're intimately, intricately connected to both. Let me give you a word of application because this is true, because our begettings come from the dust and from the divine, because this is true, it would serve us very well to very regularly contemplate and consider both our origin out of the mind and heart and hand of God and our mortality before the face of God. Why do I say that? One immediately ought to make us thankful and humble. The other ought to make us mindful of what we're doing with our days. Later on, and we'll see it next week, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, there's this very, very sober reminder. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. In what, church? Say it with me. To dust you shall return. The body has a very certain mortality. The body has a very certain temporal nature. Where did we get this gift of life from God himself? Where did we come from? The ground itself. From God and ground we come. To the ground the body shall return, and before God the spirit shall stand. This should stay ever on our minds. Secondly, Human life owes a beautiful obligation to its maker and a humbling responsibility to the home we are given. If you go back and look at verses 5 through 7, you'll get the story of, of how God uh, created man. You'll get some of the details of the timing of how he worked that out. You'll see them spelled out a little bit there in verses 5 through 7. It tells us that there was yet anyone working the ground. That's an important detail. Why? Because God wants somebody working the ground. 
My, my first pastor was a name, man named Johnny Smith. Some people in this room remember him, knew him very well. Johnny would say one of the great tragedies was that we have lost connection with the soil. He says everybody ought to be planting something and tending something and reaping something from the soil so that we keep our connection to the ground. We should keep our fingers in the dirt. Now, that's hard for some of you to imagine because you have $65 worth of paint on your fingers. You've got somebody who's crossed oceans to sit in a little chair and go... It's hard for you to imagine sticking your hands down in the dirt. It's hard for us to imagine things like slaying an animal ourselves. I recently heard someone uh, sort of being disgusted by the idea of killing a chicken. And the person they were talking to said, where do you think those chickens came from in the grocery store? And they says, well, nobody has to kill them like this. He says, oh, yeah. They commit suicide and package themselves. <laughs> I can tell you this much. If you had to kill your own chickens, you wouldn't throw so much of it in the trash. See, whether it's our mortality or the mortality of what we've been given stewardship over, it's humbling to stay connected to it. It's a, it's a humbling responsibility that God has given us the gift of a flourishing ground. And we shouldn't be people of waste. We shouldn't be people who take life casually in any form or any kind. It is a gift from God, but it shouldn't be one wasted. This beautiful obligation comes to us from the maker, by whose hand, from whose mind, from whose heart we spring this gift of life. It's interesting to me that the word for Adam, first man, is very connected to the root for the word ground, Adamah. Where did this first man spring from? The ground. Where did this first man spring from? His maker. We should always remember this. Let the church say amen. So much more could be said of this, but I would like us to see some purpose here. Before there was anyone to tend the ground, God made the ground, and then he made the man to tend the ground, both as a blessing to the creation he planned, it, planned to tend and to the created who would walk with him in their tending. The Bible also tells us that God breathed life into this dirt. It's a very cool word in the Greek. It's one of those ones, if you ever hear someone say it properly, I'm not promising I will, you'll go around saying it in your mind. The word is ruach. That's why I like Hebrew. You can always get an oyster up with a clean conscience. Ruach. Try it. Say it with me. Ruach. This is the breath of God. This is the breath of God, and, and, and it has a sound to it. And that's actually what it denotes. The word, the sound of God's breath was heard on the face of the ground. Can you imagine? You should imagine. I don't have any idea how we got on the subject last night, but uh, David and Michael were at my house. Insert laugh now. And somehow they got to comparing stories about people they have known with bad breath. <laughs> and uh, they were playing cards. Well, I think this was before they were playing cards. Um, but later on, they were playing cards. And 
I'm sitting over here reading Genesis 2, and I'm thinking about the Ruach. And I start imagining these very descriptive words Michael has used for this one man's breath. And I start imagining that man being so close to me that I could hear and smell and feel his breath. And I I thought, man, thank God we're not God. The breath of God breathed into the life of man. I would contend today that no matter what work biology does in making us, it is the breath of God that gives life still. One of the things I think that is very amazing is that when someone is struggling with what they might do with a life in them is to put one of those, what do you call those things, ladies? Won't come to me. Or they rub the belly. They put the jelly on and rub the belly. Thank you. It wouldn't come to me. Yeah. And what do they usually hear? They usually hear that little heartbeat. What's it usually sound like? Yeah. And if somebody hears that heartbeat, it's hard to do something with that. You say, wow, there's life. I wish that God would teach us to hear his breath in our lungs. It's no wonder we would sing a song that says, it's your breath in our lungs. So what do we do, church? Pour out our praise. See how close we are, even right now, to the garden? I, I, I think some people would wonder, if they were to read this in the Hebrew, they would wonder, did God make a soul? And are is life more a soul, or does the body get a soul? You can, you can wrestle with that, and I think you should. But I think the simple answer is given to us later on in the New Testament. And I'll give you a couple of samples. 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 4.12. It seems there that we were made both body and soul. And I think the greater thing to wrestle with is whether we are a body who have a soul or a soul that has a body. I would contend that because the body goes to the dirt, the soul, the soul has the body for a time. And that's important. Let me give you a word of application. Our life, our life comes from God. Our life belongs to God. Our lives are for the service of God. And let us question today with whether we give thanks for our lives and whether our lives or deployed in the way we were designed to be employed. God made Adam to work, to work the ground, to share dominion and responsibility and stewardship. And as the New Testament says, me and Shannon Allen really love this word, oikonomos, to share management with God. And whether we're walking intentionally in this purpose every day, do we look at the world as the candy store where we get our sweets from, Or do we look at God and say, what shall we do today, Father? It's a big difference in those two. Thirdly, we see from this passage that mankind is gifted abundant provision and commanded to live with purpose, and we're lovingly warned of dire danger. Did you guys see that in those verses? In verses 8 through 17, they begin to describe a very beautiful and abundant place, probably No place gives a more vivid description without reading it more than verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. 
God made all this stuff, and he provided for its sustenance. There's this powerful provision. Now, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to go somewhere tropic once in your life. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because in tropic places, there's fruit everywhere. Like you'll check into some hotel. I'm thinking of the many trips I've made to Nicaragua. And they're just mangoes. Mangoes bigger than my fist. Just out there, right out there, right outside the hotel. And you just go out there and you go, wow, in Nicaragua they have mangoes right outside the hotel. This is so cool. Guess what? You have that everywhere. You know what I mean? You ever went by a field and noticed blackberries? We have that everywhere. We just, we just get used to what's around us. There is wonder everywhere. There is provision everywhere. You know one of my favorite things in the world? Pecans. Isn't that cool? You get toward the, the middle of the fall and you just get near a pecan tree and you can't make a step without seeing pecans. No, they're not pecans. Move away. You think that? Them is pecans. Matter of fact, I visited a I visited a, a pecan plantation near New Orleans one time. And uh, I was reading some plaque, and it said the guy started this pecan plantation in 1861. And I thought, what a dummy. Who in the world is in the middle uh, of the uh, of the biggest thing that happened to our country, and just goes, you know what? I think I'll, I think I'll start me a tree farm, and and I'll wait forty years before I can get my first crop. Who does that in the middle of a war? It's crazy, but that's what the guy did. And because of the war, he lost the farm, and somebody else bought it, and they still grow pecans there today. And guess what? Pecans just jump up out of the ground, and they come up on trees and fall. That's the way this gift of abundant provision still works. The question is, do we still see the command to live with purpose? He gave Adam this beautiful world, and he gave Adam purpose in it. I want you to watch over these things. I want you to attend these things. I want you to enjoy these things. And right at the heart of what I've given you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something here to show you you really have free will. I'm going to have this tree, and you can eat of this tree, and you can eat of every other tree except one. This tree is the tree of life, and you can sup from it. To show you that you are a free creature, I'm going to give you another tree. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm telling you, please don't eat off that one. Don't eat off that. This will kill you. It's the way we still are, isn't it? If I was to put a sign over this thermostat right here, now that's a, that's a tempting device. Like I have, I think Shannon Allen sets that. Right now I think it's set on two degrees cooler than hell. I'm about to burn up. <laughs> it's probably just 70 or something normal, but I'm about to die. Who let me wear a sweater vest? I blame everyone. And if we put a sign there right now that says, do not touch this, there are some very beloved little legalists out here. And they would go up to it. And this is what they would be doing in their mind. I'm not touching you. Meanwhile, they're on their phone trying to find the app, how they can work it without ever touching it. 
You come in here later on, and it's turned down, and you say, somebody say, who touched that thermostat? Not me. We're no better than Adam, are we? This is a very serious situation. You can eat everything, and also here's the tree of life. Leave this alone. Hmm. We might ask ourselves today what we do with our choices. We can look at Adam all the day long. We can wonder why God didn't stop him. We can, and those are good questions, worthy of asking. Go to life together this week. Make your leaders nervous with your big questions. Adam had free will. We have free will. We're not as free as God, but we're free. And we're free to do the very thing he told us not to do. We just won't be free to do that forever. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I do. We might ask ourselves today what we do with our choices. Romans chapter 12 tells us that we're given this choice in Christ to present ourselves to God. We're given this choice to be living sacrifices. We're given this privilege through Christ to approach the Father like a high priest, but to live like a sacrifice. In Titus chapter 2, we're told that what God is doing in us is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. In other words, he's remaking humanity through the, the blood of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. He is remaking us to make us people of new choices. The old choices have killed us. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we already are sinners. Adam was there in the garden. Everything was before him, and he sinned. In the face of abundant provision with the command to live out purpose, he had a, a very loving warning of dire danger, and he ignored it. That story's coming next week. Let's finish this story right now. Fourthly and almost lastly, we see from this passage that humanity is blessed with a complementary help to serve God for his glory. I, I, I love what God did. did Y'all know what he did? God says, it's not good. Did you notice this is the first thing God has said, it's not good? Everything he made said, this is good, this is good. When he finished making everything, he said what? This is very good, right? Then he looks at Adam and he says, this is not good. Do, do you think God didn't know that to start with? God knew that. Here's what, here's what it was. Adam needed to recognize his incompleteness. God knew it. Adam needed to recognize it. God knew that the fullness of humanity was yet to be realized. So you saw what God did. He marched all the animals by him. That's so cool. And it's so cool. I, you know, this is why I didn't get the job. I would have so many pets. Pet bear, pet honey badger. I would just have so many pets. But what does Adam realize? He goes, like, wow, that's cool. We have a boy bear and a girl bear. We have a boy honey badger and a girl honey badger. We have a boy koala bear and a girl koala bear. This is so cool. Was he waiting for his match? He certainly saw that everything had something to match it. Adam needed to recognize his incompleteness. Also, Adam needed to see his incompleteness, yet God did not allow Adam to try to solve it on his own. If there is a modern-day story 
for much of our struggles with identity and sexuality and some of the ways we seek to wrestle through our desires, this is it. Did you notice what God did? He put Adam to sleep. He put Adam to sleep. Um, it might be one of the best dating things I've ever seen in my life. You know, you say, if you, you have a friend that says, hey, help me find a significant other. Here's what you do. Put them to sleep. And when they wake up, just have someone there. It's like, this is the perfect match. I have some friends in my life. I'm going to talk to them about this strategy this week. I'm going to ask them, do you want me to choke you out, morphine? How do you want to go about this? I'm going to put you to sleep. You're, going to wait, and you're just going to be with whoever you be. I got you. Boy, some of them are going to be surprised who I pick. And I think it's very interesting. I think it's very interesting if you look in several translations and paraphrases. I think it's very interesting how, how God, I mean, how people choose to word what's going on. For example, in the ESV, it says they're going to find a helper fit for him. In the New Living Translation, it says going to find someone who is just right for him. In the King James, a help meet for him. In the New King James, a helper comparable to him. I like that a lot. In the NASB, a helper suitable for him. And I really love the Amplified Bible. I will make him a helper, one who balances him, a counterpart who is suitable and complementary for him. Don't you see this is the design of the two genders? To receive that assignment as a sacred gift from God and to know that it isn't about you. Why would God give us someone complimentary? It's not about me. It's so that in this fullness, in this wholeness, the gift of friendship and love and procreation and, and, and partnership could be lived out as people together served God. Why would he give, why would he give Timbo's a helper? Why would he give Clay Shipley a helper? It's so that they would help one another obey God's purpose-filled commands for their lives. What is an application here? There could be many. Can I just give you one? Brothers and sisters, even my brothers and my sisters who know that at least for this season you're called to singleness. Amen? Even you people, I want you listening up. You say, he talking about marriage. That ain't for me. I ain't getting married. I don't care about no marriage. I got a word of application for you. Number one, stop talking like that. Number two, hold marriage in honor. Do I need to say that again? Was that overcomplicated? Hold, do y'all remember the rest of it? Marriage in honor. Why? Look at the creation account of marriage. I would say first, if you're married, hold your marriage in honor. Amen? Don't fall into these pitiful cultural talks 
where we put down marriage or put down our spouses, that's all a bunch of junk. Say what, Andrew? It's junk, ain't it, brother? I was struggling. He's hogwash. It's, it, <clears throat> it's more than that. In nominee, Pothery, Philip, Spirit, Don't do it. Don't do it. But the institution itself, hold it in honor. As a matter of fact, I would say it's a New Testament command. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. He tells you why. That's the negative why. Genesis 2 gives us the positive why. Because God designs societies to work for his glory. And societies are made up of stable households, of loving people who are pressing together for the glory of God. And that gets me excited. It just does. It just does. Hold marriage in honor. See God's grand design for it. One very quick postscript. One very quick postscript that will cause us to dive over into the New Testament very quickly. Marriage is a gospel gift. Marriage is a gospel gift. There's several couples in this room that I myself had the privilege of doing your premarital counseling and officiating your wedding, and you know, you know I'm going to talk about this. You know. The subject of marriage comes up. I'm going to talk about it. In Jesus' name, amen. And here's what I'm going to talk about. In, in, the, in, the, uh, in, Genesis, excuse me, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, I won't quote it all, but here's part of it. Paul says this mystery is profound. What mystery? He had just quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, the mystery of God giving man to woman and woman to man, this mystery is profound, and we finally get what it was all about. It's about Christ and his church. So what does God do on or reveal to us he's done in Genesis 2? He has laid down the groundwork for the shared management of his beloved creation and given us the very tools and relationships that are critical for it, that are critical for it. Don't think I'm leaving single people out. You, you, know, you know God has called you into at least a season of singleness, maybe a lifestyle or a lifetime of singleness, and you have your example. Be married to Christ, and live it out. Live out the service of your marriage to Christ, to Christ. Now, if you want to get you a nun outfit or a monk outfit, go for it, man. You don't need that. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You need to be adorned with the beauty of the truth of the gospel. Finally, let me say this. Alan P. Ross said of Genesis 2, I just thought this was such a beautiful quote. He said this, The main point of the whole unit then could be stated as follows. God has prepared human beings, male and female, with the spirits. 
capacity and communal assistance to serve him and to keep his commands so that they might live and enjoy the bounty of his creation. So that they might serve him, you hear that? Serve him and enjoy the bounty of creation. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Somebody say amen. The question for us is, are we? Are we enjoying God? Are we enjoying each other? Are we enjoying the bounty of creation? That is the challenge he has for us. That's the challenge. I want that for myself. I want that for my wife. I want it for my children. I want it for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Genesis 2 is one of the most absolutely powerful passages in the whole scriptures. It is the foundation of God's heart for us. Man and woman, complementing, complementary, working together for his glory to pursue God's purposes. And then couples working together in the world for God's glory. Families working together for God's glory. Uh, the husband being a picture of Christ. The wife being a picture of the church. Having children, wooing and winning them to the Lord and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is powerful church. Would you take up this call in a fresh way in your lives, in your families? Can I tell you what might be painful? Repenting of the American dream so you can take up the kingdom call. You don't necessarily need a two-car garage or a seven-car garage. You don't necessarily need this thing you don't need to run around all the time. You can, you, can really, you can really live for God. You can live in America without concentrating on being American. You can live in America while concentrating on being a Christian. And that's the challenge before us. Do you know him today? The Bible says that what Jesus did on the cross pays for sin. And when he came out of the tomb, he defeated death. He did the work that we could never do. And then he says, if you believe on me, my work will count for you. Do you know him today? Have you trusted Christ's blood to cover your sins? If you have, you're forgiven. Rejoice in that. Have you believed in his risen life? Then it's alive in you. And he's given you a new life too. If you haven't, the invitation is yours. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let God guide you. In Jesus, I pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this passage, for calling us to this book, for bringing us to these realities in a fresh way. You want your people to have passion-filled, righteous purpose. Things that are not even evil, that are just taking up too much time and energy, too much focus. We may be led to places of repentance. We may realize the way we've thought about marriage and the way we've talked about our marriage and the way we've talked about spouses and in-laws is sinful and harmful and egregious to your heart. We might be led to places of repentance. We might be living in a season where we're not seeing our marriage as a gift from you. We might be living in a season where we're resisting this time of singleness or desiring to break free from marriage. We may be living in a time where we 
We hate the work it takes to steward something well. We know that when you lead us to places of repentance, it is painful. But when you bring us out into places of healing, the pain is worth it. Speak to the people of God as only your spirit can. And lead us to bow our knee, to humble our spirits, and to cry out to you. In Jesus I pray, amen.